Greetings, I'm Cody Cook, and you're listening to Cantus Firmus Book Club, where my guest Ruth Ryder and I are discussing N.T. Wright's book, The Day the Revolution Began, Reconsidering the Meaning of Jesus' Crucifixion. Thank you for being here, Ruth. Thanks for having me. Uh, Ruth is the assistant editor for the Christian Libertarian Review and a contributor at the Libertarian Christian Institute's blog at libertarianchristians.com. And um, I, I invited you on to discuss this book because of your recent articles about it for the Libertarian Christian Institute, especially uh, the article, Jesus's Kingdom Revolution. And those articles are uh, available at libertarianchristians.com uh, for, for anybody who's interested in, in reading them. Uh, and there's also a review of the book coming out this month in the Canadian American Theological Review, which you've uh, penned. It's supposed to be this month, right? December 2019, as we're speaking? Yes. And so it, it seems like this, this book's been kind of influential for you because it's, it showed up in uh, you know, a number of pieces of, that you've written. What's the, uh, what's the attraction uh, to it for you? Well, I like to draw from whatever I'm reading uh, for the things that I write, and this book has uh, had a lot of good material for me, I think, because it relates to what we're doing over the, at the Libertarian Christian Institute. And I think the main thing is that uh, it emphasizes our ultimate allegiance to Jesus and his kingship. Yeah, I can see that, that that's definitely going to be a significant takeaway there. Okay, so maybe, maybe maybe we'll start kind of big picture, though, before we kind of work our way back to those kind of connections to uh, libertarianism and non-aggression principle and, and things like that. I guess maybe to start with, you know, The Day the Revolution Began is, is a definitely a big book, and it, it's got a lot, of, uh, a lot of information, a lot of ideas that come together. What would you say, uh, if you were to, someone were to ask you, you know, to summarize it or, or to say what the central idea or central thesis is, uh, what might you say about it? Well, N.T. Wright is trying to tackle the atonement, and he thinks that the way that most Christians today conceive of the atonement is sort of domesticated, one-dimensional, and actually sort of paganized, uh, influenced by Platonism and Gnosticism. So he he wants to correct that by <clears throat> helping the reader get uh, a sense for what the earliest Christians would have been thinking, like their mindset, what sort of shaped the way they viewed what Jesus did when he was crucified. So he's arguing that uh, it was just the beginning of a revolution of God's kingdom coming to earth. And it's tied in with his earlier book, Surprised by Hope, which is about um, what our ultimate hope is as Christians. Uh, he argues that our hope is not in an otherworldly heaven, but uh, you know, in the resurrection and the new creation, which is a fusion of the heavenly and earthly realms. As he says, when we understand what we're being saved for, we can understand a little better how it is that we're being saved. Yeah, and actually, so uh, surprised by hope, might be one of my favorite N.T. Wright books. I think partly because it's it really emphasizes the importance of resurrection. Um, and as an annihilationist, I, that that really appeals to me. <laughs> um, somebody who sort of sees the uh, the resurrection as a big part of the good news, and not just the whole you know, um, well you know somebody had to get it, and we were all going to live forever anyway. But you know, <laughs> um, but you know Jesus saves us for an eternal uh, eternal life of suffering. Um, so yeah, that that the this his emphasis on resurrection I think was uh, 
I really appreciated and, and surprised by Hope. Um, and yeah, you're right. So it seems to me as, as I was reading it, because I, I read in preparation um, for this discussion that um, he's really trying to correct a number of issues that he sees with how we think about salvation. Uh, you mentioned specifically this kind of idea of kind of being saved from the earth, this kind of platonic idea that it's about saving our souls so that we can escape from our bodies uh, and this sort of embodied existence. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he's also, you know, obviously the new perspective stuff comes in where he kind of, he has this, he sort of championed this new perspective on Paul that is much less about the difference between justification by faith and justification by works, which is kind of the traditional way that Protestants have seen Paul. Um, whereas Wright is kind of seeing the issue that Paul's dealing with, this problem of um, uh, feelings of Jewish superiority and the division between Jews and Gentiles. So that's another element of how we tend to think about salvation as evangelicals that uh, that Wright is challenging. And also, he doesn't entirely dispense with like um, penal substitution, uh, this idea that uh, you know God punished Jesus for our sins, but he does uh, definitely push back against it, and I think try to give it a smaller place uh, in Christian theology. And I certainly agree with him that we've made it the central idea when it it really isn't. <laughs> but but one thing that was kind of interesting is his characterization that um, the penal substitution theory leads to human violence. That if we say we see that you know well God is punishing Jesus for our sins and that. Uh, bring some kind of salvation, then maybe we can also punish other people, um, and then that will lead to salvation somehow. Also, we're all we're on the same page regarding um, violence, and it's the fact that it's not going to to fix the problems that we're dealing with, and we'll get into that a little bit more later. Do Do you think that um, what Wright says about penal substitution causing human violence is is a fair uh, assessment or a fair critique of it? I wouldn't say that it causes human violence. I think it's that humans are prone to violence. They want to be violent, and so they find justifications for it. I guess uh, through some of my studies in one of my degrees, uh, like a feminist theology, it was discussed um, how penal substitutionary atonement could contribute to the oppression of women and other minorities uh, and has historically how uh, people who are oppressed are basically encouraged to just deal with it and tolerate it because basically it's supposed to make them more Christ-like or something. So in that sense, I could see the penal substitutionary atonement contributing to violence. I mean, I can see where um, this, uh, this notion of um, kind of being rescued from your body so that your soul can go to heaven, I could see that leading um, to people sort of tolerating oppression more, right? Because, you know, it's this idea that, well, your body doesn't matter and this life doesn't matter. And so we move on to the next thing. I mean, I do think that suffering is one of those things that we have, I think, actually tended to want to remove <laughs> from the Christian life, but it seems like it's a significant part of what we find in the New Testament. There's there's a kind of a, a strong theology of suffering. Um, you know, you have, you know, first of all, the suffering God, and, um, you know, Peter encourages Christians to model themselves after Jesus and, um, you know, to be willing to, to be willing to suffer in order to be more like Christ. I, I guess we're... So I, I, 
I'm not a, a huge proponent proponent of penal substitution. I, I think it has I do think it has its place. I just I don't really see it as the central metaphor, and I think I can see where using it as a central metaphor creates all kinds of problems. I guess I'm just not entirely sure that I see I've heard the arguments that it it encourages maybe violence toward women or violence toward minorities. Although I just think I've struggled to sort of see how that might be the logic of that, but but that's an interesting idea. Well, I do think it ties in with uh, what you were saying about rescuing us from our bodies and from the earth for a more heavenly existence in that uh, those of us who are not oppressed can use it to uh, basically ignore the injustices that other people are experiencing. So it's easy for us to say to other people, you know, just submit and obey when it's not us who are in that position. And we can use it to deny justice to other people. And I think that's one of the ways that it's been abused. It also ignores what N.T. Wright would say is our human vocation to serve as the royal priesthood in ushering in the new creation. So when we see that we're saved for the new creation, not an otherworldly disembodied existence, we see that <clears throat> uh, justice for other people isn't a distraction from the gospel. It's not the whole thing, but it's a major part. Gotcha. Well, so maybe we can since we kind of keep circling around to that, um, that issue of justice and, and violence and, and some of these other things. I guess the the theoretical framework that Wright sort of establishes for the kind of jumping off point where 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 you sort of go with it um, related to violence and the, and, and the world system and libertarian principles is that Wright sees uh, Jesus's death and resurrection um, meaning that the powers have been defeated and um, so I guess as you read Wright what do you see um, what do you think he means by that and um, what do you think it means for us to live as if the powers have been defeated? So, um, I'm not sure exactly what N.T. Wright personally believes about the powers, but they were obviously very central in the mindset of early Christians. And they were essentially sort of demonic forces, um, that acquired their power, according to Wright, through our own idolatry, by giving them power that should have been ours through exercising our God-given vocation. But by serving the created world rather than our creator, we essentially hand over power to them and become enslaved to them through our own idolatry. Mm. Um, and so... One of the ways the atonement was understood is that through Jesus' death, these powers have been overthrown so that we can have our vocation restored and our power restored in implementing the new creation. I do see the powers, I think, maybe a little bit differently than right, because I think right... I think sort of see, uh, looks at the powers um, kind of from a starting with humans and kind of moving outward. 
that we give the the powers their power. And I'm not even 100% sure as I read right if he sees the powers as personal beings or not. He he may, but I'm just not clear on that. And whereas I guess I sort of see it moving the other way. Not 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 to try to plug a book or anything, but 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 I've got I've got a kind of a whole book on this called Fight the Powers, where it sort of seems that these powers, these angelic or demonic beings, are given authority over the over the earth, and on some level, it may be that we forfeit that power um, because we, uh, as as Wright says, we have this vocation that we're given by God uh, to rule over the world, and perhaps what happens in Eden is that that that's forfeited. And so then, you know, later when, when, when Satan comes on the scene and, and Matthew and Luke and he's talking to Jesus, and he says that the, the, um, I have power over the kingdoms of the world and give them to whomever I please. That power has been given to me. It's not clear if, if, if Satan is saying that God has handed over this power or if we have forfeited it. But there is an interesting reciprocal relationship at the very least that these powers are seeking to rule over us. And we continue to sort of give them more power, you know, by worshiping them and by continuing to sort of live in this sort of old kingdom, old world way that props them up. So, yeah, so the question of what exactly right means may be a little bit fuzzy, but what would you say it means for um, us to live as if these powers have been defeated in the, uh, through the cross and the resurrection? Um, well, I think that it means that we have to stop pretending like we have no choice but to compromise with evil and do things the way the world insists we must. Um, an example would be uh, voting, because we have convinced ourselves that we have to choose the lesser of two evils and we have to do things the way the world has decided we need to do them and we have to be practical. Uh, Jesus defeating the powers sort of turns that on its head. He turns the whole world on its head and says, no, there's a new kingdom. There's a new way of doing things. We're not going to do things the way the world says anymore. We're not going to compromise. If, if, if we can't make the world a better place through the world's own power games, I think that's, I think that's a line that, that you had written. Um, what's the alternative? Mm-hmm. Following Jesus' example of self-giving love, I think that um, the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount are a good outline for telling us how to do that. I would say, ultimately, he reveals the way to do things through his crucifixion. He does coerce people into behaving the way that he we should, you know, in order to obey his heavenly father, but he takes the world's sin upon himself um, through his crucifixion. And that sort of self-giving love is the model that we're supposed to follow for changing the world. So I, I think I agree with everything you said there, but I'm, I'm going to play um, devil's advocate and ask a couple of questions. And I'll start with this one. Um, you talked about the possibility of penal substitutionary atonement um, leading to violence because um, it, it sort of sees it as redemptive somehow, and then um, somehow that, that could become, well, you should just suffer and, and yada, yada, yada. But 
wouldn't this idea of self-giving love to defeat violence and power and cruelty um, be be more likely to, um, uh, you know, well, to, to use the kind of devil's advocate language, um, isn't that just kind of this, um, you know, kind of bourgeois idea that, that, that really doesn't affect us, but it really could affect people who are suffering and going through, you know, real, real stuff. Why should we be discouraging them um, from fighting back and using self-giving love instead? And aren't we really just sort of telling them, well, you just need to sort of, you know, pick up your cross and, and, and deal with the, uh, the, the violence or abuse that's being rained down on you? That's a very good question, Cody, <laughs> um, and a difficult one to answer. And I can see how that could and probably has been abused to tell people who are oppressed to just respond in self-giving love. Like, I know that some women who've been in abusive relationships have been told, you know, just continue to love and pray for your husband when what they really need to do is just get out. But... Um, but but not necessarily kill their husband. <laughs> right. Not, not kill their husband. No, that would be wrong. Yeah. I think it's more than just self-giving love. I think it's self-giving love because we recognize that Jesus is the true king of the world. And that's uh, where our allegiance belongs. And... If we recognize that, we recognize that the power structures and abuses uh, in the world around us are illegitimate. And so it's not just that we're promoting self-giving love. We're upending traditional power structures uh, that have served as forms of oppression for different people. And that also involves a prophetic voice. Uh, speaking against these systems of oppression. So <clears throat> um, I think that we have an obligation as Christ followers to listen to the cries of those who are oppressed and to, rather than tell them to just, you know, love their oppressors and deal with it, that we need to try to make it clear that those power structures are illegitimate and try to find justice for those who are oppressed by them. I think, you know, maybe that's part of a, a bigger question, which is, you know, really that a bigger critique maybe of, of what you're saying, which is that, you know, if we're really going to live this embodied existence that we were talking about, doesn't that mean that we, we, um, we have to, forego this ethereal notion of self-giving love and be realistic. Uh, you know, don't we have to take on the world's tools if we're going to make a difference? Um, and it seems to me that, you know, part of that question you, you sort of answered because you you spoke about allegiances, right? That, okay. that if you want to make the argument, well, this isn't realistic, you're ultimately making that argument against Jesus. So if you want to make an argument as, as a non-Christian against Jesus, that's a pretty good one. Um, but if you're making that argument as a Christian against Jesus, then, then maybe, you know, you're going to run into some problems. So that might be part of, you know, just a theoretical problem at the very least or a problem of allegiances. But I think going back to the pragmatic and the practical, it seems to me that occasionally violence um, and retribution works 
judging by you know the, what, what what you know what we see as working you know from from a human perspective mm-hmm. although it often doesn't and i think if you look through human history these cycles of violence that you know people on the bottom are constantly trying to upend the people on the top and then the people on the bottom get power and then they become just like the people on the top and they use the same tools of oppression that that got them there um and so perhaps part of what Jesus is trying to do is interrupt that cycle, maybe? I think that's exactly what Jesus is trying to do. Um, That's how I see it a lot of the time, is breaking the cycle of violence, uh, just because it never ends. To follow Jesus means to say, it ends with me, I'm not going to continue this. Yeah. Even if it hurts me. Sure. Sure. So that, so that maybe may, may while there might be examples of, of violence and retribution working, in, um, especially in the short term, as a strategy <laughs> um, and as a big picture thing, I, I think you could really question its pragmatism. Um, but even, mm-hmm. but I think even even when it does work, um, if you're looking into if you're looking at these sort of in terms of the kingdom of God and 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 you know what Jesus's purposes are. It doesn't really work in that sense, right? It might work just for, you know, for our short-term goals. That would at least be, I think, a, a response that someone might make to the retort that um, that self-giving love is impractical. I see what you're saying, and I agree. Um, because you can't, obviously, overcome darkness with darkness. Um I think that's something Martin Luther King Jr. said also. Um, You can't overcome hatred with hatred. You can't overcome the ways of the world by using the ways of the world. You have to do something new. N.T. Wright said that the the victory of the cross will be implemented through the means of the cross, through the self-giving, suffering love of Christ's people. So... Like I was saying, you can't overcome darkness with darkness. You need light to overcome darkness. And you can't overcome the ways of the world through the world's own power games. You have to use the means of the cross. And that's how we end up with Jesus' kingdom reigning. We don't use the ways of the world, you know, like seizing the ring of power to accomplish our goals and then and then we'll start doing things the right way after that. You have to manifest the kingdom now through the means that you choose. Well, and I, I kind of want to get to where this um, connects with you as a libertarian, because it seems to me that, you know, on the Christian right, we'll call it, and the Christian left, um, there is a, a broad acceptance of violence. You know, the, the, the left is big on this kind of, you know, eat the rich, kill the rich, you know, <laughs> what, what Nietzsche called a resentment, um, this uh, uh, resentment for people who are more successful than you that you you want to topple because you blame them for all of the things that are going wrong with your life. And that somehow um, for the Christian left, okay. this idea, you know, is connected somehow with justice. Um, and or on the right, you know, that, that, that somehow we're going to bring about the kingdom of God by... Um, <laughs> making sure that gay people can't, you know, get marriage licenses or something. I don't really see either of those touching this idea of self-giving love, e- either of these kind of right-wing or left-wing, left-wing approaches, because they seem to have some sort of connection with 
holding and wielding power against those you disagree with. As as we've talked about this, there seems there seem to be some points of connection uh, between what Wright is saying and what what Jesus seems to be saying, and what you uh, see in um, libertarianism, what's called the non-aggression principle. And so mm-hmm. I was curious where, where where you saw if you see connections there, and 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 also could you kind of maybe articulate what the non-aggression principle is? So the Libertarian Christian Institute on their website has a page outlining their core values. One of those is based on the non-aggression principle. And I'll just read what they say. Uh, They say, ethics modeled by Christ in the early church call us to change the world and build the kingdom of God through service rather than by force, through persuasion rather than coercion. The use of political force to compel ethical behavior cannot change hearts and only antagonizes our struggle against sin death and evil christians must call for repentance from sin in humility and never with violence as such a consistently christian ethic always embodies non-aggression okay that's pretty straightforward well and and, and that both defines the principle and uh, explains how it connects with christianity <laughs> so um it seems to me that i mean on one level it, it's the non-aggression principle or something like it it's practical or you know the, the, i you know, I haven't wanted to come out and say something like, well, you know, if you're a libertarian or you're a Christian, you should be a libertarian. But I do think on some level that there, there's some sense there, like, um, you know, this, you know, Paul says things like, you know, don't worry about those outside of the church. You manage your own affairs. And, you know, that also if, if what we really want is, you know, as, as Peter said, uh, you know, pray for, uh, you know, pray for the um uh, you know, pray for the emperor, essentially, that he would leave you alone. Um, it seems really hypocritical for, for us to say, well, we want to be left alone, but we want the emperor to go after everybody else. And that I think also is a matter, not just as a matter of principle, but as a matter of precedent that, um, you know, I think once we sort of accept these these tools of violence being used against our enemies, um, we always have to live in fear that, um, someone else is going to be in power who's not on our side, and we'll look at that precedent and say, okay, well, now I'll use it against the Christians. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense, I think, for, for Christians to accept a kind of more libertarian approach. But just, just on, a, on a matter of pragmatics and self-preservation. But beyond that, this, this notion of um, forgoing violence and in using self-giving love also is much more consistent with the libertarian model. So that that is interesting how those how those things connect. Um, might might I ask for for you, were you a libertarian first, a Christian first, and and how did those two relate to each other as you were kind of growing in in either one of them? So I became a Christian when I was about nineteen or twenty, and I was raised in a Republican household, and so I was essentially a neocon for several years. But I also, I think, have an innate um, dislike of uh, or disrespect for authority. (laughs) And I was always questioning uh, certain rules, basically, that I was told were important. And uh, I think that sort of set me on the path to when I did finally encounter libertarians and libertarianism, it started to click and make sense. And 
ultimately I realized that it was the most consistent philosophy, not just for me personally, but for me as a Christian. Um, because outwardly, maybe uh, it makes sense to be a conservative and to want to make laws that enforce what we think are Christian values. That enforcing those laws requires inflicting violence upon nonviolent people in order to force them to live up to your particular code of ethics. You're not really behaving in a Christ-like way because... Jesus didn't coerce anyone to behave in a certain way. And God reaches us through our hearts, through love. He doesn't force us. And if he did, that wouldn't be love, of course. We all know that. So as a libertarian, we have a basic stripped-down code, which is based on self-ownership and simple property rights, which is more or less what the Ten Commandments is about anyway, um, that we don't aggress against other people. We don't commit violence against other people or try to coerce them. If they're living in a way that we disagree with, but they're not violating anyone else's property or person, then we have no right to do anything to them. It's interesting that in our in our kind of personal bios, um, anti-authoritarianism uh, seems to be a shared value. And I think for me, I um I noticed that. Well, there was something that was said by uh, uh, the Christian musician Derek Webb before he became the atheist musician Derek Webb. Um, that uh, ultimately, um, as a cynic, what he really was was an optimist. That a cynic is somebody who looks at the world and sees that it's not what it should be, and he sort he or she responds with uh, by, by kind of reviling it <laughs> um, and mocking it. And I think for me, my anti-authoritarianism was really um, some just kind of in search of a, a good authority. You know what I mean? That what I was sort of seeing was that authority was often not behaving in the right way. Um and that I was told to respect something that wasn't actually respectable, um, just basically for the sake of it. You know, well, it's it's, it's you know, it's it's authority. You have to okay. respect authority. And uh, I really resisted that. <laughs> um, and and I found that I, I, since since becoming a Christian, I've I've been very content to respect the authority of God. Uh, you know, apart from my more sinful moments. But I think the difference there is when I'm when I'm disrespecting the authority of God. I, I will look at that and say I'm sinning, <laughs> but when I disrespect, you know, the authority mm -hmm. of the state, I, it's usually for good reason. <laughs> I I can relate to that totally. Yeah, I I wonder if most uh, most libertarians and, and even libertarian Christians um, share in common a uh, a disrespect for authority. <laughs> I suspect that they probably do. No, and 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 two, it's just kind of questions about your your personal bio a little bit more. Um. You, you mentioned one of your degrees um, relating to theology. So, um, where did you go to? Where did you go to? Where did you go to school? And what was your degree in? Well, I got my bachelor's in history uh, from Eastern Michigan University, and then I got a master's in what's essentially a degree for missionaries from the Evangelical Divinity School. 
And then I got another master's in the history of Christianity. Now I'm working on another bachelor's, but that's irrelevant. <laughs> well, I, I, you cut out a little bit. Were you saying it was Trinity Evangelical Divinity School where you received your master's? That's where I received my first master's. Okay. Where, where did you receive your second? Notre Dame. Oh, okay. Nice. Yeah, they, they've got a great um, Christian history program. At least my understanding is that they do. Yeah, it's one of the top in the country, I sell. Your article seems to say that the issue is this. Is Jesus correct about what he said in the Sermon on the Mount, or was he wrong? If he was correct, then it seems that we need to abandon the old world, the old kingdoms, and their defeated powers uh, for the way the new kingdom functions. At the end of the article, this is this is the, the, the main one that we were talking about, Jesus' kingdom revolution, uh, the one for LCI, uh, Libertarian Christian Institute. You say that uh, if we have no other choice but to compromise with the powers, then Christ died for nothing, which is a pretty strong statement. Do you stand by that? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you want me to elapse? <laughs> <laughs> you certainly could. It would, it would, I think it would, uh, it would make for better listening. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I'll start by saying that that's essentially N.T. Wright's argument, and I think that I agree with him. He says... Um, that to act as if the powers are still in control of the world is essentially to deny the gospel itself. And if Jesus died to overcome the powers of the world and to usher in his kingdom, this new way of being uh, that he outlines in the Beatitudes, then to live as if he didn't is deny what he did and you know it, it's essentially like he died for nothing uh, if we act as if the powers are still in control and we are enslaved to collaborate with them yeah it's a strong statement but I, I, I think I agree with it it's just uh, uh, kind of struck me when I read it <laughs> well um, Ruth, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk with me. It was it was uh, good to finally talk with you, not exactly in person, but um, <laughs> but I think uh, in, in in the past we've uh, just you know text chatted a little bit on on Facebook and gone back and forth here and there. So um, for people who are interested in finding out more about you, they can search your name, uh, particularly in connection with the Libertarian Christian Institute. Or uh, search for your articles at libertarianchristians.com. Uh, you also had uh, recently done a podcast with them on the issue of abortion from a libertarian perspective. Yeah, I uh, talked with Carrie Baldwin and Jacqueline Otto Isaacs. And Carrie actually just did a debate with Walter Block um, at the Soho Forum in New York. Sorry, you cut out just a little bit there, but um, but I, uh, just for anybody who's interested, it was is a debate with Walter Block, um, who is a uh, libertarian philosopher, who I think holds to the evictionism evictionist stance that um, while you can't justify killing a baby in the womb, you can certainly justify removing it, even if you know it's going to die, um, 
which is an interesting um, kind of middle way, I guess, that at least at the very least acknowledges the humanity of the unborn, so we can, can at least be thankful for that. Thank you so much, Ruth. 